Hello, everybody. Hey. <laughs> How are you? I'm Lacey Delane. I'm Sonia Lorea. And welcome to Rethinking Humanity Interviews. We are so excited to be live with you today. Uh, we have an awesome show for you. Uh, we're excited. Uh, we're excited to be here. Sonia, how are you? How have I'm you good. been? What's going on? No, I'm just uh, doing what we're all doing every day, wearing my mask and social distancing, but uh, excited yeah. about tonight. This is a great show. Yeah, I'm excited for this one, too. Uh, I feel you on the uh, the social distancing thing. It feels like we're kind of entering like March again, in a way, March, April again. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so definitely. Otherwise, uh, other than mask, masking up, everything else is good with you, huh? Yeah, it's all good. Good, good. Me too. I am um, getting used to uh, masking up as well. Uh, and just this new kind of chapter we're in with, with COVID, which feels like a, a continued you know, the same thing. Uh, but you know what? I actually, a couple of weeks ago was really excited because I was finally healthy enough to like be out and about a little bit and see my mm -hmm. friend from soccer that I hadn't seen since like last October. Yeah, I remember. We played, we played some pickup yeah. and this has really slowed us down with the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Show everybody. My wrist people. Oh my God. It sucks. So yeah, that's that's put us behind a bit. But you're healing. Yes, yes, I'm healing, and I am thankful that it could have been way worse. So True. I am um, I'm super happy about that. Uh, so yeah, we're we're excited. Um, we want to thank you guys for watching. We're excited about uh, this new kind of spinoff of Rethinking Humanity. Our typical podcast, obviously, we don't do live on YouTube. We do through um, Anchor, which you can get on Spotify and pretty much all different platforms. Um, and we just came out with our latest episode. Uh, Sonia, it was episode five. You want to mm -hmm. talk about it? Uh, we love for um, you guys. Oh, it was having and being, obviously, Eric Fromm. We discussed the Old Testament and New Testament. And you definitely need to check it out. Go Take it away, Lacey. Tell them why they need to check it out. Here's why. If I don't do it as good as you, then you can do it, okay? <laughs> but here's why. This episode tells you that the Old Testament tells you, and the New Testament tells you that it is very important for you to have a day off, to eat, to drink, to have sex, to play, to enjoy yourself, to have a chat. So I think that's enough of a motivation. Yeah, listen to it. It's good. It's a good one. But no, no, really, it's uh, I, we're really proud of it. It's amazing to me how much the themes of the being mode of existence exist in so many different elements of of life, of you know, uh, different religious uh, writings as well. So mm -hmm. we're we're excited to see that uh, in the Old and New Testaments. So yeah. Uh, check that out, guys. So obviously today we have uh, James Treckle with us. We're excited about that. Um, we are going to be talking to him. He uh, actually is a co-producer of Juice, which is a documentary about electricity. It's really good. Really uh, good. We watched it a couple of days ago. Definitely check it out and get it on iTunes and Prime Video. Um, so please participate, guys that are watching. Um, and we're going to have some time at the end that is dedicated to questions uh, if you guys are interested and you have them. So we're excited about that. So without further ado, let's bring in our guest, uh, James Treckle. Hey, everybody. Hey, James. 
Hi. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, James, tell us where you're joining us from. So I am here in Austin, Texas. I uh, love it here. Uh, it's a little hot, but I mean, that's Texas for you. Um, um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, humid. I was in Houston last summer and I was melting. It was bad. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm glad I don't live in Houston. It's a little bit too big for me and it's a little bit too humid for me. I mean, like, you know, we're close to the ocean. I'm not that close. So I right. can tolerate that. Right. I thought it was humid in Georgia before I came to Texas. No, I grew up in it's Texas. <laughs> it's humid there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, James, tell us a little bit about yourself before we kind of get into our theme, which is which is workism. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You have a, a lot of stuff going on. You've got a podcast that I think is awesome. You did this movie, Juice, which we watched is awesome. Um, and then, of course, this workism video. So talk. Go for it. Have at it. Oh, so I am a filmmaker. I'm a writer. I dabble in all kinds of creative stuff, but uh, filmmaking is what I do for a living. And I've been doing that for, oof, in one capacity or another, I've been doing it for about 12 years now. I've been really making money doing it for about five, going on six. Um, so mm -hmm. I uh, grew up in the Midwest where there is no real film industry to, to speak of in Indiana, at least. Um, there's a little bit here and there, and, you know, the other states around it. But in Indiana, it's been, you know, a film industry desert for a long time. And uh, I always knew that's what I wanted to do. I, I love the movies. I love just the magical experience, the surreal, you know, dreamlike uh, storytelling. And I wanted to direct, like everybody wants to be the next Steven Spielberg. That was me. I copped to that. Um, but I, I ended up kind of finding my way into editing. And I, I still do other things, but editing is my main gig. Uh, and editing is mostly what I did on uh, Juice, How Electricity Explains the World, uh, which is a documentary that I helped work on for three years. And the production went all over the world. They went to India, Iceland, uh, Lebanon, uh, Puerto Rico, um, yeah. California, New York, all over. Um, and it was an incredible experience because this documentary really reframes uh, for, especially for us as Americans, the way you think about energy consumption, the way that you think about electricity, because, you know, we just take for granted that you mm -hmm. can get up at any time and turn on yep. a light, you know, like, Oh, well maybe your light bulb is out and that's like the worst you can hope. Or maybe you didn't pay your energy bill if you're poor, but even that is like a very marginal amount. Imagine being somebody who has a comparatively middle-class existence in say Lebanon, and you just flat out in Beirut, in the developed areas, you do not have 24 hour electricity. You have to uh, deal with diesel generator cartels in order to get the mm -hmm. equivalent of 24 hour electricity. So you end up paying two electric bills. And this, this is a topic that it's easy for it to become academic because we tend to think of this in terms of economics and, you know, big numbers and yada, yada, yada. You know, it's, it's all this kind of like, you know, UN global development kind of thing, right? It's like, it's hard to, to see the human side of that. And for us making the film, uh, which was directed by Tyson Culver uh, and produced by Robert Bryce, who is also an author and journalist who has been covering the energy business for decades. Um, 
we wanted to tell the human story of electricity. We wanted to really mm -hmm. bring it home why it's important. And um, that, I mean, I, for me, at first, it was just a gig. It's like, oh, well, you know, I'm working with this guy, Tyson, and some other projects. And then, you know, he was like, hey, I've been working on this documentary. And uh, can you help me, you know, cut up some of these interviews? It was very early on. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I was just really sucked in immediately by how passionate some of these voices were about the human side of this topic. And wow. so that's why I eventually became a co-producer of the film because uh, in the documentary editing process, there's a lot of give and take. And I ended up kind of taking this on as, as like a personal project. This became more than a gig for me. Wow. This became something that uh, I felt like really reflected things that I already really deeply cared about, about, you know, uh, about human development, human rights and, so the, the film is a very merciful, like, you know, 90 minutes long. It is quick. It's not dry. It's not, you know, like I'll do respect to Ken Burns, but it's not a PBS documentary. It's powerful. You know, it, it, and it's something that you can watch with your family. It's like, this is, you know, it's educational, it's emotional, it's informative. And, you know, I think yeah. everybody can enjoy it and learn something. Yeah, I think particularly, you know, we can empathize. It can help us to to be able to empathize more with others. It's incredible to me how much we do take electricity for granted. I mean, I, it, you know, in the in the film, it's like, you know, kids who don't have electricity, they can't go to college because they can't study because they. I mean, right. it just it just the layers just keep keep going yeah. to it. So it is incredible and. Um, I mean, that seems like, you know, coming from watching that, it's like, okay, electricity seems to be a basic human right at yes. this point. Yes. Right. It was amazing how they had to plan their life around when the electricity was on and it affected the work and their health and so many aspects that, like you're saying, we take for granted. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that, you know, uh, a good number of the, the listeners to this podcast are going to be people who care about universal basic income. And that, to me, it dovetails with the, like it's the same logic for why electricity should be a human right, why mm -hmm. basic income should be a human right or a right of citizenship, however you want to frame it. It's the same, right. you know, the same argument, because you're if you don't have your basic needs met, if you can't read at night, then you can't educate yourself. If you can't, you know, do the dishes then you don't have enough time in the day. If you can't um, have basic sanitation, which is usually electrified in some way, uh, if you can't cook indoors without having to use biofuel, which can make you sick, then all the you know uh, aspects of your life begin to deteriorate. And it's the same thing if you don't have money. Uh, these you know uh, access to just basic resources. Going into the 21st century, we're going to need to get electricity to every human being on the planet. Because right now, there's some somewhere in the neighborhood of basically three billion people that don't have the electricity access that we have. Um, yeah. And it when you think about the number of people that don't have any electricity at all, it's actually close to one billion, if I recall correctly. That was amazing. Uh, yeah. It, it, which you know, we, we think about right. it. You know, we have all this incredible technology at our fingertips here in the states we really do take that for granted. There are people that live in the dark. They live in what is almost a primordial kind of existence compared to us. And mm -hmm. we need to get them electrified as quickly as possible. And there's a number of different technologies we can use to solve those problems. So energy poverty from a human rights perspective is as big a problem as climate change or any other global 
uh, issue. Uh, yeah. And I was, I also like the part where they discussed if you had to choose between dirty energy and no energy, we're going to pick the dirty energy. So there, there's the climate aspect of that. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then there's the iron law of climate, right? That uh, Roger Pilkey Jr., he makes the argument late in the film that if you have to choose between economic growth and, you know, uh, and reaching like a, a climate goal, you're yeah. going to choose economic growth because you want to improve your material circumstances. So we're, right. we're forcing people into this choice in which, of course, they're going to choose fossil fuels. Of course, they're going to choose these dirtier forms of energy because the alternative is poverty. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. well, we, we need to eliminate that. And that's through a mix of energy technologies. It's, there's no one size fits all approach. It's a mix of nuclear and renewables. And even natural gas has done a lot to decarbonize the economy. It's like it's not perfect mm -hmm. and has lots of issues with fracking, et cetera. But it is much, much cleaner than the next best thing. Right. So mm -hmm. we need to be getting natural gas into places where coal is currently. And we need to get uh, renewables where renewables make sense because those technologies have been kind of overhyped. I don't want to, you know, crap on renewables too much because they do have their place. But, yeah. you know, we definitely need nuclear, though, as a dense electricity baseline yeah. that then makes things like renewables even more viable because you have a stable grid and you can help offset um, any remaining fossil fuels that are in your energy mix using renewables. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I walked away from the film realizing is that we need, not only do we need to do nuclear, which I'm a believer in, but we need to do it all and we need to do it yesterday, but we need to do it as soon as possible. And, yeah. and it's just like, you know, the climate crisis, when you're in a crisis, you got to use every single resource you can. And this is a crisis, a human crisis for people who can't get electricity. And so we need to use every resource. And it's amazing to me how much more efficient and how much less is necessary for nuclear to work. That was pretty cool to mm -hmm. see the comparison between like the natural, the windmills, and then like yeah, nuclear. That was, that was good. Yeah. 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 So well, it's worth noting one, one final note on, on nuclear there. So we visited the uh, Indian Point uh, nuclear power plant in uh, New York, and that plant has since shut down since we oh, went right. there. And if you look at the amount of energy share that went towards that plant has now been, if I recall correctly, it's been almost entirely replaced by natural gas and coal. So mm. step backwards towards our carbon targets right. in the name of the environment. It's kind of, it's, it's hard to justify. Uh, and yeah. yes, you know, Indian Point was an older reactor and needed to be updated, but advanced nuclear in particular, we need to be subsidizing that. We need to be investing in it uh, yeah. as a country because yeah, getting nuclear uh, up and running can be expensive, but you, it will last much longer than fossil fuels. And if you consider the environmental cost of using other forms of energy, whether it's through land use with renewables, which is one of the major drawbacks of those, or if it's through carbon with you know carbon-based uh, fuels, then yeah. uh, nuclear is, is the clear choice in many cases, mm -hmm. especially for dense urban areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think thorium, I don't know if it was mentioned specifically in the in the film, but you know, I think that's a, also a, something that many people haven't considered. And I think it's a great option for us. 
Yeah. Well, it's educational. Everyone needs to check it out. I love it. Yes. Very good. That's kind of, I love documentaries, man. That's my life. <laughs> if I'm watching something, it's a documentary. So tell us, uh, James, uh, about your podcast, the Normal People podcast and anything else before we dive too much into um, to a workism. So I started a YouTube channel, uh, Treacle Up, which is based on my name being a pun with the trickle up uh, economics of mm -hmm. you know, Andrew Yang. And um, right. so I and some of my friends were quarantined, were bored, and mm -hmm. we wanted to talk about politics. And so we started the Normal People podcast, which we were doing weekly. Now we're doing it more bi-weekly. We've been interrupted a few times. You know how it is. Um, yes, I do. <laughs> you do your best. Um, yeah. But uh, it, it's a good time because, you know, our premise is that we're not experts. We're just normal people. We're just, you know, weighing in from our, our perspective is, you know, we're all people that, you know, are from Indiana who are on the um, originally, at least, who are on the mm -hmm. podcast. And, you know, we uh, we're just trying to uh, tackle these topics, whatever is in the news, cultural trends, anything from UFOs to, you know, uh, I don't know, conspiracy theories to whatever. It's not, it's not all fringy stuff, but you know, we cover fringy stuff. Um, yeah. And I mean, we just try to have a frank conversation. That's pretty much mm -hmm. the long and short of it. Mm -hmm. I listened to a little bit of the one on, on social media which I think was uh, interesting. And uh, again, that's a conversation we could have for, for hours uh, about the good and the bad and the yeah. effect. That. Yeah, that was a depressing podcast to do because <laughs> oh, really? the more you research into social media, uh, which I have a bunch of books on it now, and it's just like, oh, I just, why am I even on this thing? But then, you know, that's where, you know, you, you go to stay connected and be informed. Yes. And, you know, it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a catch twenty two, um, but I, I listened to the one on uh, I think it was the the brutality, police brutality. Mm -hmm. There's one on the police that was good. Yes. Yeah, cool. so you do a lot of current topics, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Try try to stay current. Try to weigh in. You know, people are waiting with bated breath to hear what we have to say. So you know, we got <laughs> to deliver our authoritative statement. The normal we know we totally get that. <laughs> we got so many people waiting to hear from us. Let me tell you. <laughs> um, cool. Well, uh, also the work is in video. Now I saw this. You did this, I think, in April. Is that right? You put this that out. Right. That sounds right. Okay. Yeah. I remember seeing it and being in the midst of you know uh, coronavirus and all that good stuff, and just not having the capacity, but thinking, oh my god, we got to talk to James. So he's mm. going to be perfect for the podcast. Um, so we're going to play the first 45 seconds of it for everybody right now. Um, just get an idea of it. It's about five minutes. I think it's had over a thousand views at this point. Uh, but just take a look and we're going to talk about it. If any would not work, neither should he eat. St. Paul the Apostle wrote these words 2,000 years ago. We've been living and dying by them ever since. Whether you're a capitalist or a socialist, St. Paul's commandment is sacrosanct. It's the foundation of the labor theory of value. The American Puritans held to it. So did Vladimir Lenin. This one verse, part of the Western world's Christian DNA, has evolved into a secular religion, workism. And make no mistake, it is ideology. 
faith wearing the vestments of economic theory. We must all dance for our dinner. Yep. Okay, so there it is. <laughs> and so um, I love it. Uh, workism falls so much in line with the being mode of existence versus the having mode of existence. And, you know, it just fits in so well with what Eric Fromm talks about. So tell us a little bit just about what motivated you to make the video, uh, how you got the concept for it, um, and that kind of thing. So a aspect of my background that I don't talk about that often uh, is that I studied to be a Christian minister. And uh, it didn't work out, clearly, because it's not what I do. Uh, but mm -hmm. it uh, b being, you know, a... Uh, you know, devout evangelical Christian was a huge part of my life for, you know, my first 18 or so years. And I was such a diehard that my pastor paid for me to go to ministry school. And so I was the young, upstart, loudmouth, wonderkind who had an opinion about everything in regards to, you know, Christianity and church history and, you know, doctrine and dogma and yada, yada. So, um, I had a, an interesting experience though, because we didn't, my family didn't start out as evangelicals. We started out Eastern Orthodox and eventually found our, our way through a number of different denominations to the one that I went to school in. And this kind of eclectic upbringing gave me a unique perspective on Christianity and its influence on the culture. Because the thing that got me in trouble in ministry school and the reason why it didn't work out is because I liked reading into the, the deep texture of culture and history and the way that all these things shaped the faith and the way the faith then in turn shaped culture and history. And uh, that led to some uncomfortable conversations about certain things in the Bible that to me, especially having uh, a background in which, you know, as an Eastern Orthodox Christian, you have more than 66 books in the Bible. You have, uh, if I recall correctly, it's 78 so um, that, uh, you know, the, the idea that the Bible was just like kind of it fell out of the sky as a divinely ordained document was already something that I rejected because I knew that that's not true. And that's mm -hmm. something that some um, some aspects of Christianity, some uh, traditions within Christianity readily acknowledge that like, oh, of course, you know, the church is the ultimate authority. We put this document together. Theoretically, mm -hmm. we could change it whenever we want, but that's not the perspective of the evangelicals in part because they're coming in America really from this Puritan tradition. And this is where mm -hmm. workism comes in because mm -hmm. what workism really is, is this sacrificial kind of covenant. And covenant theology is huge in Puritanism. It's, it's, it's Calvinism, you have a covenant with God uh, just like, you know, Israel had a covenant, it, the believers, the church has a covenant with God, and you have to continually prove your worth through this kind of sacrifice. This mm. is a paradox because it's occurring simultaneous to this predestination that you are either damned from the beginning of time or you are predestined to be saved from mm. the beginning of time. But you don't know as the individual believer which one you are. And so in order for you to prove to yourself, ultimately, that you're one of the elect, you have to prove that you're holy 
by working really hard, by sacrificing mm -hmm. in a Christ-like way, right? So it it mm -hmm. creates this incentive, and this is something that you know sociologists have been talking about forever. I mean, like you have like Max Weber's, you mm -hmm. know, um, you know, uh, you know, Protestantism and the spirit of capitalism. This this idea that you have to be mm -hmm. industrious. That's where your your personal value comes from. That's where your holiness comes from. I mean, it's everywhere in our culture, but it, it has this, you know, uh, implication to it, which is that if you don't work, you don't deserve to live, you know, you don't deserve the basic necessities. And so it is something that flies in the face of the, of the, you know, uh, small L liberal conception of human rights that people have innate human rights that every human being deserves, you know, uh, the right to life. And that means, you know, food, water, shelter, things like electricity in the 21st century, all those kinds of things right. should be given to us because we're human beings and for no other reason. Well, to the Puritans, it's like, well, but if you're one of the damned, God doesn't love you anyway. Why would we provide for you? We'll just cast you out of the community if you can't carry your weight. And so human right. life doesn't really have that inherent value. Uh, and so these two things, this universal human rights uh, belief set and this puritanical belief set have kind of been growing up like weed and tares to use a, another biblical kind yeah. of illusion right. uh, yeah. in American culture, right? So like to understand why we're so confused about our relationship to work, I think is by we, we hold these two beliefs kind of subconsciously simultaneously. And they're in conflict yeah. with one another. And I right. think it explains a lot of the anxiety that we deal with of like, well, I feel like, yeah, of course I have inherent value. And of course everybody does. But you also have this sort of like gut sense that like I could always be doing more. And maybe everybody else is like lazy and they're, they're you know, kind of slacking off, but I won't. I'll work harder, right? And like that kind of like suspicion yeah. of your fellow human being uh, is is everywhere in the culture, and, and this is why you know you have people who will work themselves to death, and we need to be moving away from literally yeah. directly confronting mm -hmm. this this workism because a lot of the things, honestly, that people blame on capitalism are really other aspects of human nature uh, or other beliefs that are kind of coexist with our current economic system. It's like capitalism isn't perfect. But workism is not capitalistic, strictly speaking. It doesn't have any work mandate. Uh, labor is just something that's part of the economic theory, but it's not like you must work or else you should die. Like that's not in capitalism. That's workism. That's a separate thing. And if anything, wow. has a, a more direct relationship with uh, the kind of classical Marxist-Leninist you know, model of socialism where, I mean, the, the, the old anecdote is that like you could walk into like a fish shop somewhere in Soviet Russia and there would be three people working the counter doing the job of one person because work is just supposed to be good. Like the symbol yeah. is the hammer and sickle. Like it, this is explicitly not just about labor rights, but about labor itself being a dignifier. If you don't work, you don't deserve that dignity, right? And part of the reason why the, you know, the, uh, the bourgeoisie are treated with such contempt is because they don't work. Well, they're like leeches. They need to be destroyed, not just because they're rich and powerful and corrupt, of course, but that's almost like it's because they don't work that they are wow. rich and corrupt. Oh. And they, they are leeching off of our labor 
And that makes them less than human. And that justifies this kind of behavior, right? This like violent, you know, revolution as opposed to a democratic, you know, a series of, you know, controlled reforms uh, that respect human rights. And so, and that's very different, I think, from like the, the modern forms of socialism that we're seeing that like, I, you know, I, I critique them all the time, but I, they're not necessarily as reliant on this workism kind of, you know, conception. More of them are based on a liberal view of, of human rights being universal as that being the point, right? And mm -hmm. so, it, but it's something that we need to be explicit about because it's pernicious. It's already there. And if we're not careful, it can grow up and become like, oh, well, you know, and honestly, you even kind of see it in like, well, you know, Jeff Bezos makes like, you know, $10 billion a second or some whatever number that somebody, you know, brings up. I don't know where they get those numbers, honestly, but it's like, you know, a, a second without lifting a finger. And you can kind of feel the, the puritanical contempt in there. And I'm not saying that I don't personally have some sense of contempt for, you know, Jeff Bezos for being right. Jeff Bezos and right. being a dick. But uh, all that, you know, aside, I, I think we we need to be careful about the language that we use because these belief systems are part of the background radiation of our culture now. We need to be uh, yeah. talking about them. We need to be directly confronting them and setting up something new to replace them. It's not enough to just criticize workism. We have yeah. to yes. make an explicit replacement. Like this is the ideology that we want. Uh, we want something that uh, treats human beings with innate dignity and that provides for all your basic needs and then rewards labor because labor does have value uh, over right. that or talent or whatever. But like you should not feel like you don't belong in America unless you can, quote, work hard. Like the reason why immigrants coming to America is a good thing is because they're people, not because they're hard workers. And I think that is even yes. in well-intentioned discord about immigrants. Like, oh, but immigrants are great because they work really hard. It's like immigrants are great because they're people and they're bringing their yeah. culture and their lives and entrusting us with them. So we should mm -hmm. respect them because they're human beings, not because of all the things that they could do for us, right? Like it's it's a very otherizing kind of thing. Workism kind of has its, its fingers in all kinds of pies and we could get into that later. Let me, let me ask you a question, James. So I look at when you talk about workism and you relate it to Christianity or going to actually even biblical scripture, what about the other aspect of in scripture, something that Lacey and I touched upon in our last podcast, there, there's a lot of language like in Exodus, I'm sure you know, Matthew, um, where they talk about you don't need to you don't need to do anything to receive. And that we're also looking at, uh, you know, the the last is the first and, and the humility where why do we lose those aspects when we're um, looking at Christianity and workism? So I hate to sound like, you know, a Catholic <laughs> trad or, or something Go like ahead. that on, on Twitter, but I blame Protestantism. Uh, and the reason being is because it removes the historical context and then the biblical context. It creates this kind of Mad Libs version of Christianity where like, well, Martin Luther made executive decisions about what he felt like what was most important in scripture and disregarded church tradition, mm -hmm. which, you know, church tradition has its own problems. Mm -hmm. But it, it's also a corpus that contains within itself the ability to moderate and did over time. You know, there was a counter-reformation. Uh, and 
each of the kind of high church traditions that have a more kind of structured approach mm -hmm. to the development of doctrine have been able to reconcile some of these differences between, you know, the kind of workist tendencies within scripture and the, the you know, the really it's kind of a sacrament of the Sabbath, like this idea of oh, yes. yeah. you don't need yeah. to work. And like that, that um, or, or, you know, and I quote it in, in the workism essays, like I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that was specifically related yeah. to the Sabbath in the uh, in, in the context of that original passage, because Jesus was quoting from, I think it was Hosea, and the um, uh, the the long and short of it is that when you have a split between these different uh, mm. denominations, you end up with Calvinism being this very works based, regimented God in the Calvinist cosmology is very cruel and capricious. And, you know, he's not going to tell you his plan. He decides who to save and who to damn, and you can't argue with him. And, like, in predestination had been something that had been argued to death in other church traditions, and they eventually kind of came up with a synthesis that made it kind of make sense and not make God into a huge monster. But all that kind of got thrown out <laughs> with the Protestant Reformation and removed right. all that uh, uh, ecclesiastical literature that had helped people make sense of that, at least theologically. And since that was gone, now these things can kind of rage unchecked. So, you know, within the Bible, because it was written by human beings, you're going to have all these different competing interests right. and ideas. And with nothing to contain that, because, I mean, really, I, I think the fact that there are, you know, there's tens of thousands of denominations of Protestant Christianity versus, you know, a handful of splinter sects of Catholics and Orthodox. I, I think that the high church, like, the church is the authority groups within Christianity were vindicated. If you don't have the church setting the rules, anybody gets to decide whatever they want out of the Bible is more important than any other, any other thing. Wow. If you're in a church in which somebody decides to just preach workism, that is gospel literally. And it's hard to fight that without just leaving and starting your own denomination. What's your recourse? You're both interpreting the Bible, right? You're both being led by the Holy spirit. And so it right. leads down this, this, you know, very divisive uh, right. chaotic path. So the takeaway is you're saying that the Protestant uh, part of this took those, you know, that theme and took it into workism. Because if you're looking at biblical scripture, again, you're looking at anti-greed, anti-ego, and it does not seem to fit. I think that's one of the challenges we have today with people that have left the church is they're saying, wait a minute, this, this doesn't fit my value system if this is what Christianity is about. Yeah. If this is right, right. Yeah, it's it opened the door to new kinds of Christianity that don't resemble the historical uh, faith in any, you know, really meaningful sense. Like you kind of, like, honestly, I have a lot of respect for uh, Mormons because it, to me, it's like the, it's the natural endpoint of being Protestant. Is it like, well, why not just add your own New Testament? Like, here's an additional Testament, why not? And it's like, you know, it's Bible fiction because Protestantism is kind of that anyway. Like they, you know, King James cut out books he didn't like because they were too Jewish. True story. Uh, that's why I went from yeah. 78 books to 66. And so now you have a whole other section that have been like either decanonized or kind of shunted off into like weird, ambiguous territory. And uh, those things are all just products of, you know, the evolution of, of this religion to something new. I mean, like the, the Protestant 
you know, ethos is very different. It has unleashed all kinds of new strains of this. And so it's part of the problem of like referring to American Christianity. It's like, well, what do I really mean when I say that? Right? Like, uh, you know, is it, is it the Calvinist one? Is it the Arminian one? Is it the, you know, the, the high church Catholic one? Is it one that's like, you know, incorporating Jewishness into it? Is it one that's like kind of anti-Semitic and afraid of the Jewish, you know, like, and there's like, there's, there are infinite ways to read the Bible. And that is the problem is that the Bible is a Rorschach test and the Bible needs a, a context of a living community. And this is something that even speaking of, of, uh, of the, uh, Jewishness within the Jewish religion, this is critical to it. Uh, I mean, this is why you have not only the Torah, but you have uh, all the rabbinical texts. You cannot just read the Torah and understand what it's supposed to say. You have to read all the rabbinical literature that has grown up around it to understand it. And uh, this is also true within Islam is that you have, and this is why there's a separation between the fundamentalist Muslims and the Muslims who are um, more moderate or more liberal because the ones who are more moderate, more liberal are reading all this other uh, literature that's grown up around the Quran. It's not just, you just read the Quran. And if you read any other thing, then, you know, mm. you are, you know, being defiled in some ways. Like, no, you're supposed to read all the other um, tradition around it to give context for it. That's like, this is like the beginning of wisdom and then everything else around it is what shapes this ever evolving relationship that we have with this text and with our faith. And that's true of every major Abrahamic religion, including Baha'i, except for Protestant Christianity. It's the only one that doesn't do that. And notably, it's the most splintered, it's the most chaotic, and it's the most selfish. Really, really mean to Protestants right now, but I was one, so I'm allowed. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, it, it, it's part of the reason why we have these contradictory things where like, people feel like it's really important for them to, to vote for Donald Trump to protect their faith. It's like, that doesn't make any sense from a traditional <laughs> point of view, right? But from a Protestant yes. point of view, it can make perfect sense. And that's what's so damn irrational about it. It's really hard to fight. Yeah. Well, often you think about, um, go ahead, Lacey, sorry. <laughs> No, no, go ahead. No, I was thinking about how people pulled away from uh, religion, but at the same time, workism is sort of a secular form of a of a kind of a religion of saying, you know, we've got to work eighty hours a week. We this is who we are, and it's infiltrated really the psyche of of you know how we view ourselves. Yeah, it, it really has, and I think that's that's true of a, a lot of things within Christianity in particular have kind of become, you know, like the theology itself or like the moral implications of those various theologies have become part of the cultural fabric of America or, or the West generally, but America in particular. And I think you can really feel it in the tension between the United States and like its immediate neighbors. And this is something I've thought about a lot. It's like, well, one of the main reasons why there is so much enmity with like with Mexico, it's like, yeah, there's a racial component to that, but it's not just that. It's also because Mexico is culturally Catholic and we are culturally Protestant. Yeah. And honestly, that is more important than the racial component from a historical point of view. That is why mm. there's so much tension uh, because it mm. it's, it's this whole different worldview 
it's like to to the Protestants, the Catholics are living in a world of superstition and magic, and you know it, it's this very kind of otherized kind of thing. Whereas Protestantism is individualistic and rational, and you know it, that that's those kind of cultural tropes then become secularized. So what you see and 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 mm. uh, you know uh, in Latin American culture and South American culture because so much of it was, you know, it kind of imprinted with Catholicism with the colonial activity is this, this, you know, uh, sense of community and transcendence, all these things that um, are, are really at odds with the, you know, the individualism and the kind of, you know, fragmented nature of American society where it's kind of every man for himself, right? Yeah. Like every man for himself thing is, perfectly Puritan because mm -hmm. you don't know if you're saved or you're damned. It really is you against everybody else because you just have to focus on yourself. You got to prove to yourself or else yeah. live in anxiety forever that you're one of the elect. That is, mm -hmm. you know, your priority number one and everybody else. Well, God either saved them or he damned them. It's none of your business. You can't control any of it. There's no point, whatever. Just worry about yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. And hence why we are where we are. Exactly. Well, you know, it's so interesting because when we first talked to you, James, uh, I remember asking you this question, like, how did you even come to a place where you're going to do a video on workism? And I totally did not expect you to say anything about religion, much less that you were super religious at one point. I also was. Um, and I think it's so ironic in a lot of ways that we can tie so much back to this puritanistic uh, religious ideology. And I think it's incredible how much we don't realize it. Like we're just living on autopilot in this world that is exactly set up because of that. And we could be living in a way that's much happier, but we don't. And we don't even question. Like <laughs> we're not even thinking about why, you know, why this yeah. has happened. We're just like, yeah, that's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah. We, we are, swimming in it right it's it's ambient and it's um just like we you know we take a lot of our blessings for granted i think we take a lot of our problems for granted we think that they're kind of universal there's a sense of like when we export american culture we export our cultural assumptions and mm -hmm. that is definitely something that we're seeing that in kind of like the way that we talk about everything from from work to race etc we're kind of we're we're very eccentric in the way that we think about a lot of these core issues and yet we treat them like they're universal conflicts because yes. they are theological in their tenor and we just don't realize it we've been growing up in it we've been ingesting it you know uncritically and these things are theologies and we just you know haven't yet woken up to the fact that they are yeah mm -hmm. when we talked to you the other day a term you used that really uh, struck me resonated with me was brutal individualism I thought that was a great word to describe um, where we're at. And what I think's happened now with COVID and everything is all of these issues are accelerated. We're kind of face to face with these things that you're saying we've been living with and it's sort of status quo. And now we're seeing, you know, pulling the curtain back. Yeah. Oh, completely. I mean, like there's, it's not a coincidence that we're having this racial justice moment on the heels of our economy and our, our human value really coming into question, right? Because all those things are tied together and yes. they happen from the beginning. 
Well, that's a perfect segue to race, which is something that, again, blew me out of the water when we had our initial conversation, that this is also tied to uh, religion as well. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because this just, just blew my mind. So, and I had mentioned Calvinism earlier and this idea of predestination and that really you have two classes of human being. You have the saved and the damned, sheep mm -hmm. and the goats, right? The, you know, the elect and everybody else. And when you had the growth of the slave trade, I mean, because slavery is, is, you know, as old as humanity, unfortunately, but mm -hmm. the specific kind of slavery that we saw, the chattel slavery that we saw uh, the Dutch and the British engaging in, in particular, that kind of slavery required a theological justification for its cruelty. And if you were dealing with people that you could justify to yourself as being like, I don't have to worry about treating them like a Christian brother. I don't have to worry about treating them like a member of my tribe and because their life is, is valueless to me. Well, predestination is a very convenient way to do it. It's not the only way that that was done, but it was definitely a, a key way that it was done, especially for the Dutch, which were highly Calvinistic. I mean, there's a reason why, I mean, South Africa was in its apartheid, you know, explicitly apartheid uh, mode for so long, in part because they had this very strongly divided, you know, whites versus everyone else uh, culture. Mm -hmm. And we, mm -hmm. we have that too, uh, from a, a mix of various different uh, cultural strains, but mainly, yeah, it is that puritanical sense of like, well, you know, I don't have to worry about these Africans because these Africans, as you can see, are from, you know, the, clearly they have the mark of Cain. It's on their skin, right? So all of a sudden the color mm -hmm. becomes, which is, it's like skin color is one of those things that like, it, it could be like hair color. It could be like eye color. It's just a physical feature. It's not exactly. predictive of behavior or anything else. Like biologically, the, the more that we understand about uh, mm. genes, the way that they're distributed, the more readily apparent it is that like eugenics and all those kinds of things are, are hilariously misguided because right. race doesn't exist. There are yes. distributions yes. of, of population, right? That have... Yeah some traits that are shared in common. Like, obviously, if like you're all on the same continent and these are the only people to sleep with, people will start to cluster certain traits. But yeah. those traits uh, are infinitesimal indifference compared to any other group. Like we haven't had nearly enough time to evolve <laughs> into like anything approaching a real race in a biological sense. It's just, I mean, humans spread out super fast uh, over the past, you know, uh, 20, 10 to 30,000 years, right? So, uh, you know, evolution just isn't that fast. And what we have instead is these folk races, these, these uh, you know, false conceptions of difference. And they are loaded with theological implications with, uh, you know, the term is racial essentialism. That like, if you look at somebody, you can tell wow. something about their character, their spiritual nature. And that is, that that soup is what we've been swimming in. And that, the, the pithy way that I describe this is that the belief in race is racism. Racism, like workism, is an ideology. And yeah, awesome. and this is, this is something that's like, you know, it, 
we're, we're at a moment like there's a lot of conversation about like critical theory. Maybe there's things that are wrong with it. And critical theory is a very broad umbrella. So I'm not going to defend all critical theory. But one of the key insights from within critical theory is this idea of social construction. And that's just that. And this is something that's readily apparent to anybody who's looking is that certain ideas are created to the advantage of some people over others. Mm-hmm. It's something that occurs in religion. It's something that occurs in politics. Uh, and, you know, when it comes to the concepts of gender, everything, right? And, like, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that everything is a discourse of power necessarily. Like, there's reductive ways that can be used, but it's also a useful tool. And one of the most mm-hmm. useful things to to recognize is that the things that we treat as being real tend to kind of become salient or real to us psychologically. But those things are illusions. And we are basically living in the matrix in this country where we have created this mm-hmm. fake racial binary of whites, everyone else. And genetically, that's not even true. Right. Um, I'm going to bring out one of my favorite books here because I have to play. Okay, cool. Yay, Twitter. Okay. Uh, this, this book is called Racecraft and okay. it was uh, written by Karen Fields and Barbara Fields and okay. they are mother and daughter. It's great. Uh, and uh, it's Racecraft, the soul of inequality in American life. Uh, this was uh, blurred by Ta-Nehisi Coates, so you know it's the you know it's oh, the thing. Cool. And uh, this book oh, is right. incredibly underrated. Uh, let's see, when did this come out? Like it, I think it's like 2013, something like that. It's been out for years. Everybody needs to read this book. Uh, it's not a hard. Can you race, say uh, racecraft? Race, yeah. Racecraft. Okay, I'm gonna see if we can get Victor can, to pop it up on the screen for us. Cool. Go <laughs> ahead. That, Sorry, that'd be great. That'd be great. So. Yeah. Um, one of the things that they talk about very early on, 2014, there you go. I wasn't that far off. Um, one of the things that they talk about very early on is that genetically, um, we have this huge blended mix of, of different descents ethnically in, in America. And like, you literally can't actually tell by looking at somebody and the color of their skin, whether they have African ancestry or European ancestry or, or, or not. And that is one of those things that's kind of mind blowing to people because they're so used to using the fiction of race to explain descent of like, well, obviously you're more African because your skin is darker for people who are, especially people who are descendants of slaves, uh, Americans descended from slaves in, in the United States, you could have more European DNA than African DNA, but you just happen to have this dominant skin pigmentation gene and so therefore everybody right. thinks of you as being more african than right. whatever and like and those things those kinds of conceptions they they not only otherwise they they kind of create this this weird field of distortion that covers up all kinds of other problems one of the reasons why they use the term racecraft is that uh the the salem witch trials um Again, going back to the Puritans, mm-hmm. this mm. was a way to deal with the kind of anxieties that were existing in the culture at the time. And it was easier to blame this supernatural force, these witches, for all the misfortune that the colonies were going through at the time than to deal with the material world that they didn't fully understand or with the anxieties that their own culture being Calvinistic, being very desperate 
and its mood all the time was creating. I mean, like the suicide rate was pretty high among Puritans, especially men, because of this pressure to prove that you were righteous. And if you were like the man of the house, I mean, like people would just go go walk into the woods and disappear, you know, Wow. Um, because the pressure was so intense to prove that you were a man of God. Right. And mm. similarly, like they, they go through all these historical instances of like you see race is this way for Americans to kind of create this sort of, you know, uh, theological conflict between these two binary forces without having to deal with the class inequities that are ultimately at root of so many of these things. And this is something that even like the, the Confederates were explicitly trying to do. They explicitly set poor whites against uh, blacks because they felt that it was important to keep the poor whites in their place, even more important than even keeping their slaves in their place because there was more poor whites. If the poor whites got hip to what was going on, how they were being exploited by the slave owners, they would overturn slavery and they would overturn this empire that the Confederacy wanted to, to build because the Confederacy didn't just want to split off. They wanted to conquer South America. That was their goal because they had this manifest destiny to, to them. Manifest destiny never ended. They wanted to take over the world and turn wow. it into this new empire of Christendom. And that was the language that they used. You can, you can read the speeches that people were giving on the Senate floor uh, even prior to the Confederacy actually splitting off. Wow. That's what they wanted. And um, that, that uh, theological kind of uh, conception of race is still with us. It's something that it is disturbing to me when we talk about anti-racism that we don't kind of like with workism, we haven't really decided where we want to land when we're done with this. It's like, mm -hmm. we all know that there's a problem with the way that we treat people based on the color of their skin. But then we end up kind of reinforcing racial categories. Instead right. of yeah. literating them, we end up reinforcing them. There's something like James Baldwin bemoaned mm -hmm. that he he talked about the fact that like, well, part of the reason why we can't get rid of this is that white people still think they're white. And what he meant by that is that like, well, nobody's white, nobody's black. They don't exist. And unless yeah. So we have an explicit renunciation of these things. We're not right. going to get any. So, so I love this idea. So let's say you take that away. And I love that you're saying that race is racist. So if we eliminate that thought or that language, then are we looking at basically the social construct? I mean, actually to have these discussions with people, it's one of the things they use is these terminologies that we're all accustomed to race. Right. Right. So what is what are all our alternatives, you know? Well, I, I think this is something that we've like edged up to before uh, and that you saw it like when, when there was that push to like stop saying black, you mm -hmm. know, start saying um, African-American. African-American, yeah. And, and now we've kind of backslid. It's really <laughs> odd, right? I think the reason being is that we imposed African-American, but we never hyphenated the European-Americans. It just became like, you know, if you if you didn't have like a strong attachment to being like an Irish American or whatever, you were just a white American. And so we never got rid of race. It was still there. Mm -hmm. Right. And because the the white category is kind of like the taproot of this whole thing, unless you get rid of that, everything stays like we didn't actually get rid of it. We just came up with a second term to call a, a, another group of people that may not actually all be of that descent. That's something that 
they also talk about in racecraft is that technically there's a distinction between Afro-American and African-American from an ethnic wow. point of view. Because if you're African-American and the way that they conceive of it, you're probably somebody who is like, oh, well, you literally immigrated from Africa, like you're Nigerian, right? And then you moved to America yeah. and naturalized, and now you're an African-American. But obviously your experience and your ethnicity yeah. uh, and your culture is going to be right. profoundly different from somebody who uh, you know is descended from slaves here or has just kind of like being sort of merged into the general cultural sphere of being an American, right? And so all these... All of these things are incredibly blurry. And what you see happening is that like the government is creating more categories. Mm -hmm. And so we are seeing greater and greater balkanization of Americans, but you still have the racial categories on there. Right, and right. That to That's me, the first thing that came to my mind was like, why do we still have race on this stuff? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense because it's like, well, I'm trying to, be an ethical human being. And I'm trying to internalize what somebody, you know, a great anti-racist writer is saying to me as a person who looks white and saying that, look, you have to realize you're not white. I'm saying, okay, I'm not white. I don't check that box on the census anymore. I check, I, I actually just write in American oh. because to me, that's my ethnicity. That's the only thing I've ever known. Like I don't identify with the British side of my family. That was literally hundreds of years ago. Like that's not, it's not, something that's important to me or the Swedish side. It's like, I know where I'm descended from European, but that's not my culture. My culture is American. And right. that is true of the overwhelming majority of people who live here, no matter what they look like or sound like, right? right? Is that, I mean, you could be somebody who lives in Texas and is like, you know, you got the, you know, the beautiful, you know, brown Hispanic skin, the whole deal, but you are, adamant that you are a Texan, you are an American. And like, and like those people, I, I love running into those people because it really kind of overturns these assumptions we have about what an American looks like. Yeah. And I think that there is absolutely a mode in which even like well-intentioned liberals are walking around with a default uh, view of American in their head. That is a white man. And we need to get rid of that. That is yeah. the first thing needs to go. It's like, what does being an American mean? Well, like, there's there's a great book, another one I want to recommend, called Call Me American. Uh, if we could throw that up on screen as well, that'd be great. So Call Me American is about this Somali immigrant and his story growing up in Somalia as the Civil War was beginning. And he wanted more than anything to be American. Hmm. When he, before everything kind of fell apart, and the place where he lived, yeah, there it is. Um, he saw you rock, America. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Victor. You're doing great. Uh, he saw American action movies, and he he listened to uh, American music. So everything from like country to rap to rock, and all those things. No matter who was making, whether they looked white or black or whatever, they were American to him. And he never thought, oh, because I look like like Somali, that, that therefore I can't be American because the values that he got from American movies were anybody can be American. Interesting. It doesn't, wow. and, and, and like, because a lot of the movies that he was watching were made in the eighties. And this was like, you know, white guy and black guy <laughs> shooting bad guys, like working together, they're equals, they're a team, you know, like it's 48 hours. It's, you know, it's predator, it's whatever, like all these different movies 
with these, you know, quote, mixed race castes, uh, casts and like the, um, the, the message that he got was that like, oh, being an American doesn't, you know, like, well, in Somalia, everybody kind of looks like each other. Like in America, it's not the case. You can just look like whatever. And that was attractive to him. And that, yeah. it's, like, it's really easy to be down on America. And like, we're, you know, mainly in this conversation, criticizing a lot of these major issues with American culture. But that's just like the wheat in the chaff, going back mm -hmm. to that metaphor, that mm -hmm. is also part of our cultural export is this idea mm. that race is a fiction, that it doesn't matter. And there, it's like, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of like being, you know, colorblind or whatever. And like, I understand why people are, are critical of that concept because right now with all the issues that are going on, mm -hmm. you can't just pretend it's not happening. Right. And right. 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 That's, that's not what I'm advocating for at all. I'm advocating for a deliberate, explicit merging of our identities into one identity. It can either be, let's decide that we're gonna be ethnically American, or if we decide like, you know what, we live in a global culture, maybe it's time to move past that, cool. Then mm -hmm. let's all just identify as being human. You know? Yeah, and, I and love honestly, that. Honestly, yes. you know, whatever people decide on is cool so, with me because it beats what we're currently doing. Yeah, and, I yeah, I uh, agree. What I want to touch on is that you're talking about the other. So when you brought up the fact of um, the witches in Salem or even like immigrants, the I think what happens in our culture is that we're finding someone or you brought up the poor, the poor whites in the era of slavery. There's like someone to blame for the issues or someone to look at. You're taking my job or you're bringing down the country. And that's like an easy way to scapegoat and not look at us as humans or as you're saying, Americans. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, we have all this anxiety. It's a way to deal with it without having to deal with the material causes of the anxiety, right? And so that's why, you know, for me too, it's like I was really attracted to UBI, not because I think it's gonna solve all, the, all these problems, but because it's like, well, here is a way to deal with one of the core material causes of this tension, right? And this, this is true. I mean, going back to Jews, uh, when you look at a country that's been electrified, they have less violence overall because you provide for people's needs and they're not going to feel that desperation, right? Yes. And now it doesn't mean that like racism ceases to exist because of electricity. It does mean that you're less likely to have as right. much racial violence or even just ethnic violence, whatever you know, kind of intertribal violence it might be, right. um, if you provide for people's material needs, if they're not feeling like they have, you know, a boot on their neck or gun yes. placed to the back of their head, they're going to feel a lot more forgiving because they aren't worried about at least their material condition. And I think then you know the other aspect of this is, and this is where workism is particularly hard to deal with because it's also about our spiritual condition, right? And that's mm -hmm. something that we need to deal with uh, as well because workism is, is kind of about identity. And that's another way that it dovetails with the race conversation is that, yes, yeah. you do have people that even if unconsciously, you know, their, their racial identity uh, is the thing that kind of sets them apart. And we're going to have something. We're going to have to have something that replaces that. Just like we have to have something that replaces the the yeah. meaning of work for people, right? Mm -hmm. And um, 
what that looks like, I think it's an open conversation, but it's a conversation that we need to have. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I definitely get, we were talking about this earlier, Lacey and I, about this whole idea here is that our, unfortunately, we do identify our work as who we are. It's, it's giving us value. We're looking at for, for this transcendence. Um, and it's, it's, that's a message I think that is unhealthy to especially the younger generation that, oh, follow your passion. Like this is just going to fulfill you. And we know that that's not the case. As if work is going to be the thing that gets us to self-actualization. You know, that's the other thing about basic income that's so awesome is it enables us to free ourselves up to find that self-actualization. And I think like, when we move to workism as a religion, which is kind of what we see in this country, we begin to see people who think that that is how they self-actualize through work, through workism. Yeah. And then they brag that they're like, oh, I just worked 80 hours this week. Isn't that awesome? And I only slept for two hours this whole week. And I'm like, right. no, I actually want to have a work-life balance. <laughs> you know, No, that's not awesome. And right. there's so much more that we can live for than just being a means for production and consumption. Absolutely, yeah, and I think it's, as our culture has secularized, it's kind of like the, it's kind of an agalist to the um, to the colorblind kind of myth, right? They're like, oh, well, we haven't actually dealt with the root of this yet. We haven't gotten rid of these pernicious cultural beliefs so we're still living with them, even though we have like, oh, like, oh, I'm an atheist now. Oh, I don't believe all that stuff. I still act as if I do, though. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the the core thing is that like you can tell what somebody really believes by how they behave. And our culture yeah. behaves as if it's still ruled by the God of Calvinism. Yep. And we're not really moving past those things on a deeper level, because while we may have decided that going to church isn't for us or no, of course I'm not racist or whatever. It's like, yeah, but those things are still with us and they have to be directly confronted. They can't just be, you know, dismissed because they're, you know, no longer cool. They have to be expunged. They have to be, you know, we have to have leadership. And I think that's part of the problems that we have kind of a void of leadership. Um, yes you know, really taking us in a new direction on these things. And that's one of my frustrations is that I see a lot of really great conversation about what's wrong with race, but then you see people kind of glom onto the wrong stuff. And I've been critical of yeah. like the, the white fragility book, et cetera, mm. because like, to me, that is all about reinforcing this Puritan, like, oh, well, it's just about my spiritual condition, you see. I just need, I, I, as a white person, just need to realize how white I am. It's like, well, all you're doing is just subbing in white for sinner, as opposed to, exactly. I need to realize that whiteness doesn't exist and blackness doesn't exist in the way that I've been conceiving of it. And we, we all need to have this collective realization together and move forward. Yeah. And so we are, we are kind of reinforcing those things so we can stay within our comfort zone while mm -hmm. telling ourselves that we've we've done the work, right? We we're not really getting rid of those things because we're not sure what's going to replace it, and we haven't yet had somebody say like explicitly like, "Look, I'm challenging you, America. I'm Mr. Person who is running for president, and I have decided mm -hmm. to tell you, Americans, you are Americans, you are nothing else." 
And like, we haven't really had that yet. And we need to. I, I think what we need, and, and Fromm talked about this in his writings in the 50s, is that we need people who are willing to be creative, to creatively sit down and think about, okay, race is not a real thing. What can we do instead of that? Or what's a different way of thinking about things? And not just with regards to race, but with regards to, you know, basic income, our work, how we see ourselves as human beings, our human value, our society, culture, all of these things is we, like you say, I think we do a good job of pointing shit out. We can point shit out. And some people are better at it than others. <laughs> but we we can do that and we need to do that because you can't solve a problem you don't know exists. But we got to go beyond that. And I think yeah. probably that's why most of us liked Yang very so much because he had like solutions, you know what I'm right. saying? And so I think what I hope we see is people take some more time to think about what are the solutions? What can we transition to? How can we do this differently? Because right. we can talk about it till we're blue in the face, but until we have some ideas and actually it's fun. I mean, Sonia, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast, like actually it's, it's actually a creative moment. How can we change things? How can we rethink how we're doing things and to make it better for us, to empower us? Right. Yeah. And I think it's challenging. I think people, they're uncomfortable sometimes with these conversations because we're a culture that likes instant gratification. And so the way that we're sold things is like an antidote. Well, like going back to your Calvinistic thing, look at Jody. She got up every morning and she did this on the farm and she got a 4.0 and she got a great job. So you guys can do this too. Raw, raw, you know, right. and, really uh, is, you know, it's not addressing our real issues. And going back to the UBI, I, I believe that offers a floor. It offers, you know, some kind of base there for us to move ahead. But that that challenges us because it goes against the whole workism, the Protestant work ethic, individuals, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, and I think too, you know, I spoke earlier about, you know, critical theory and, you know, social, you know, construction, also social deconstruction, really kind of the point of this postmodernist kind of, you know, philosophical mode that we're in. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that plays to some of our, our puritanical instincts because we like criticizing and we like deconstructing. Mm. And, but we only like it so far because we don't know what it's like to then build something out of that interesting yeah and like it's it's easier to destroy something than it is to build something so i think you know you if you i think if you corner a lot of people and you're just like look we all know that this is bullshit right they're like oh well yeah of course it is right right but then the reason why we're still having the same conversation over and over again is because we haven't we, we figured out how to be critical but not affirmative we can't we haven't decided to affirm this next thing and be like this is what we're building explicitly this Let's move forward together. And that I'm looking forward to because honestly, I, I think it's coming. I, I'm an optimist. I, mm -hmm. I do think that we're moving in that direction in part because of how much things have been shaken up by this moment in which we are forced to have a reckoning. And yeah. I think people don't want to just play out this drama again in a few years in which like, well, we didn't deal with the root causes of police brutality. Surprise, surprise, it's still happening. People are still getting killed. What did we not do last time, right? Well, 
we could do that right now. Instead of waiting for five years from now, we can look at, well, these are the things that we didn't do last time. Last time we didn't set up a universal basic income. Last time we didn't have a conversation about a transcendent identity. These are the conversations to have right now because there is no better time to have them. Yeah, I agree. And I think this is a time, because I'm a little bit involved uh, with political things. I, I think you're seeing sort of a grassroots, um, I don't know if I want to call it awakening. There are, there are rumblings of people wanting change. And what's happened is because we've been in crisis. And this is what's had to happen. We've had to really been slammed to, to have people say, whoa, we need something different. Just to your point, do we want to repeat this in a couple of years? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the pandemic um, laid a really good foundation for people to be a lot more open to making their voices heard about things and um, maybe even being open to things changing because we've seen our lives change drastically through this year, through 2020. So I think now is as good of time as any to to be making these changes. And I'm encouraged. I'm like you, James, I'm a I'm an optimist and um, I believe we will. And I think Sonia is too. I believe we will really begin to see some of this stuff. I mean, the fact that we, you know, had some type of a stimulus check, I think is a is a huge win. I think it's a step in the right direction. It's not basic income, but there are people who have the words basic income on their lips who would have never, who said in the, you know, primaries, they would have, they weren't yeah. going to say anything about basic income. Right. And we're seeing localism begin to grow for UBI yes. with this move by these mayors. They get up to yeah. 17 mayors now. It's a lot. Right. Um, yeah. Yes. And that, uh, that is one of the most encouraging things I've seen for UBI basically since Andrew said he was running. And um, we're now starting to get to, yeah. I mean, I think because of the election, right? It's, it's hard to keep our eye on the ball, uh, but I think things are also gonna get a lot worse. So I think we're gonna be kind of like uh, you uh, mentioned early on, uh, in this recording that, um, yeah, the uh, it feels like April again. You know, we yeah. kind of feel like we reset to the beginning of the mm-hmm. pandemic. Well, I right. mean, especially here in Texas, because we didn't have like the big wave yet. Yeah, it, it does feel like it's just beginning again. And yeah. so I, I think people are going to remain shaken up for some time. We should take advantage of that. Like, I don't, I don't think that it, within this window, everything is possible, but I do think that some things are more possible. And, yeah. you know, uh, one of those things is definitely the conversation about race and getting rid of it. And uh, the other one is definitely about basic income. I mean, because, and as we've discussed, those thing, two things are tied together. It's not a coincidence that we're speaking of them in the same breath. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think localism really is the key to change Mm-hmm. Uh, so seeing cities begin to pilot it because those pilots will work yes. and they will be well received. Oh, yeah. They will change people's oh, yeah. lives. And especially mm-hmm. in our connected age, because, you know, a lot of these UBI experiments were, you know, pre-internet or they're in Finland or wherever. Right. But in the States, we're going to see more and more people who aren't like Yang gang people. It wasn't like an issue right. for them a presidential election, they're just going to start receiving UBI and they're going to be like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> I just feel so much better. 
having this, just even that little bit, just knowing that it's there makes a huge difference for me. Or people are going to know somebody who's been receiving UBI. And right. that, that kind of chain reaction, I still think is, this is not going to be something that, you know, plays itself out in like tidy timelines of like every major election. It's going to be another, you know, huge referendum on a big idea. But I do think that within this generation, we're going to see a huge movement towards embracing these ideas. And I yeah. think we're going to not just experiments. I think we're going to see uh, cities and counties and states passing UBI and UBI-like laws. And mm. that is going to change things. Yes. Because like, I would love to just like say, oh, yeah, well, if we get our guy <laughs> in as president, it's good. You know, just pulling right down the middle of the lane, but it, we know it doesn't work like that. You still have to right. get a bill through. And like by the time it gets through both houses, which who knows who's going to be in charge of those houses, it could be, you know, completely messed up. And <laughs> realistic that you do this the same way that we made gay marriage legal and the same way that we made, uh, you know, uh, mm. are making marijuana legal, which is like, well, now you have states they, that are legal. States, yeah. And like that, I mean, cool. It, it, it will trickle up, right? It will absolutely work its way up to the top of the system if we just keep at it. Yeah, and I, I think- love- we, Yeah. Go, go ahead, Donna. No, I just like people, I feel, um, are more empowered when they're working there at the local level, instead of saying the government who's over there, who you hear a lot of that negativity. Right. Mm -hmm. I love the idea too, that we would do it on a local level like you were saying, like marijuana, like gay marriage, like that makes great sense. And, and eventually when everybody sees how awesome and happy the people are in those cities or places, they're going to be like, oh, damn, we need to do this on a federal level. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it's it's one of those things that I think, you know, you can entice more people to do it because it's, it's kind of a foreign idea and it feels experimental, but if you could just point to a couple places in the U.S., I mean, like I know that for a lot of people, just hearing that Alaska has something. Um, so yeah, I want when you're ready, I want to I want to take this one. Questions, yeah. yeah Thank you, sure. Anthony. We're going to open up for questions now, guys. Let's go so, and do that. Before I keep rambling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. All right, I'll read it. Do you think it's possible to, to design policy without taking into account the inequities that have accrued to groups that we've come to identify by race, even if race is just a social construct? Hmm. Interesting. I, I'll let James take that. <laughs> I am very much so pro-reparations, but I think part of the push for reparations has to be about healing. It's not about fixing the past it's about creating a better future. It's about, to me, reparations is a way of saying that way. We have treated this group of people, this group of Americans, as if they're not Americans. Or, and, you know, at a time, as if they weren't even human. And, like, those things, we can't go back in time and fix. But we can begin to say that, like, look, you are owed inheritance. We can give you that inheritance now and begin to close this wealth gap. And I think two things that go hand in hand to do that are reparations and UBI. UBI is a way to tie the whole group of people together and say that everybody in this 
society is equal. Everybody is an American. Everybody's a human being. Everybody belongs. If you're receiving UBI and you're a citizen, you belong here, period. Right? Right. And I think that will have a profound psychological effect on the whole culture to look at yeah. everybody you see on the street and be like, they're just like me. They're getting X amount of dollars per month, right? Yeah. That they yes. are also owed this inheritance. But one of the key ways that I think that uh, uh, African-Americans have been disenfranchised is by deliberately having their wealth destroyed. You look at, uh, for example, what happened in to Black Wall Street in, in Black Wall Street, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. this is not an isolated incident. That happened over and over and over again. Right? Any time that you saw African Americans slash Afro Americans, however you want to categorize this group of Americans, begin to acquire wealth and power, it was deliberately taken away from them. We need to be just mm -hmm. as deliberate and being, we're sorry for what this country did to your ancestors and we can begin yeah. to do that right right now but that has to be it's, it's it's truth and reconciliation it's what south africa did where we're gonna sit down and look each other in the eye and be like from now on we are one people and the, the only way to do that is to be like here's what we're gonna do not just say and not just like pat each other on the back like, oh, we're all good now right like we have to make up for the material inequities and reparations does that for people specifically. And there, there, this is something that like, you know, there's already been a lot of research done into reparations by who should receive it, how much the amount should be, et cetera. This is not something that like, oh, well, how are you going to pay for it? And, you know, who is going to get it? Like, well, it turns out there are answers to those questions. There are reparations bills that exist. Right. And right. It is, in many cases, to, you know, we know who are the actual descendants of slaves. And no, reparations is not going to solve racism, but reparations right. is part of this healing process. It's part of this right. to make it possible for people to play the game of capitalism, this human-centered capitalism that we want to mm -hmm. Well, right. you got to have money to do it. And if you don't have any generational wealth, that's that's what this is about. Mm. That's what reparations yeah. is about, is about setting the foundation for generational wealth. So just like any other American, which henceforth everybody will be known as, <laughs> that's the only way to do that. I, I think that we have to basically have a transition from yeah. this period of time that we are in, in which we are looking at each other through these distorted racial lenses to a genuinely post-racial society. Yeah, It's possible, but we have to get really gritty about it in the same way that South Africa did. South Africa has not solved all of their racial issues. It will be a continual thing. I mean, it's, you know, was in the 80s and 90s that this process of moving out of apartheid really happened in, in South Africa. And of course, they're going to be dealing with all that for a long time. But they were explicit about the, the starting point of this is the new society that we are building. We haven't really done that. Even with the civil rights movement, there was still kind of a like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good, good. You, you, you got your civil rights, right? Like there was still like a kind of like, okay, we're moving past it now. No. And people justifiably were very angry about that because no, we are yeah. not past it yet because reparations still need to be paid. And we don't have a common sense of Americanness that we have explicitly constructed. And if you can still crack open your census every time it, it rolls around and check white or black, we are not done. Right, right. right.
That's a good point. And, and I want to piggyback what you're saying. Number one, I don't think we know the history. Like you're saying, it's happened over and over again. The wealth has not allowed to accumulate. And also wealth is more than financial wealth. It's also resources of who you know and education yeah. and where yep. you live. So there, yes. there's many aspects there that um, I think people aren't, aren't aware of. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, like, there's there's this classic kind of weaselly thing that you see people say of like oh well the reason why black Americans are poor is because of the disintegration of black families like well it's because the black family is poor that you have disintegrated families look at look at you know uh, hillbillies this is like hillbilly elegy like pretty much everybody read that book it is yes. exactly the same exactly any any group of people you disenfranchise them they disintegrate period. It's not because there's anything inherent about them. You materially deprive them and socially they're going to start to fall apart. That's not, that's just human nature. That's what happens when you're dealing with that amount of stress. So obviously you relieve the stress and then magically the family begin to knit itself back together. Huh? Interesting. How right. that works. That, right. That's, right. That's kind of like a common sense approach to wealth. You know, I, one of the things I like to say is that like wealth is good and we need more of it. You know, we have this this weird opposition to, to to just being explicitly pro money, as if it's like, well, money's the root of all evil. Money is the thing that we use to make our society go. Everybody needs the ability to have some go in their engine. You got to get where you need to go in your life, and it doesn't have to be a lot. It just needs to be something, and then that's a start. Right. And, and what's interesting is that the idea um, that um, Lacey and I always talk about this, that we're interdependent. So this idea that I live in a bubble and what the people next door to me are doing has nothing to do with me is anathema. I mean, obviously, we're all interconnected. And if we bring up those that are near us, we're all all of society benefits. But I think yes. that's a concept that's hard here for some reason for people to wrap their heads around. I, it goes back to even maybe what James was saying earlier. Like we're such an independent culture and based on our, the Protestant foundations of our country, you know, it's like, it's about what we do. We have to be self-made kind of thing. And the blinders are there to like, you can't realize that what you're doing affects someone else and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Okay, we have any more questions? I know uh, someone said something about the wage slavery hashtag. Do you know anything about that, James? I, I don't know anything about that. Um, it's it's difficult because, I mean, I think that wage slavery is basically a thing. Like, I, I agree with the concept because um, even though it might seem kind of in poor taste to compare it to, like, I don't know, actual slavery – on the other hand, the psychological effect of it is pretty deleterious. And yeah, you are being coerced. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely being coerced into, you know, working in many cases, like, you know, like growing up in Indiana, not a whole lot of opportunity unless you went into pharmaceuticals. So my options were basically move, go into <laughs> pharmaceuticals, which is something that I hated the prospect of doing and probably was not going to be good at. It's not, I'm not have aptitude for any of that stuff. Or, you know, I just work at some kind of wage job. You know, maybe if I get lucky, I get a trade or something and I make a decent living. But, you know, for the most part, it's going to be people working these, 
you know, uh, minimum wage jobs or just above trying to make it. And yeah, that, that is a coercive relationship that you have with your employer because they have you by the nuts and they know it, you know it, society knows it. And we're all mm -hmm. trying to pretend like that's not the case. Right. So that all that being said, I, I think it's just, it, because of the the taste aspect, <laughs> how much you want to pay for it? Yeah, um, commissions are open. You know, uh, you know where to find me. Anyway, uh, but I, I think I think it's the taste aspect, and I think it's it's hard for people to also defy the social norm that you know. Oh well, it's not wage slavery. You're just earning your keep, right? You're mm -hmm. just doing what you're supposed to do and making a dollar because if you don't do that, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's a fair day's work for fair day's pay, blah, 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 blah. That kind of like Norman Rockwell-esque Americana, you know, dyed in the wool sense of this is just what you got to do. You know, it feels hippy dippy to point that out that that's obviously crap, but yeah, it is obviously crap. And everybody is like, it's all over. Like I notice it all the time in like every form of media that I consume. There's always a story about like, man, I just can't live working the same job for the rest of my life. Like everybody knows it's crap, right? Yeah. But we all kind of pretend like it's not. Such cognitive dissonance there, you know, right. just like many other things in our lives, you know, I'm doing great. Not really. I'm depressed. <laughs> you know, like that's what we tell people, but not uh, in reality. Mm -hmm. I was going to shout out a few people that commented when we were talking, there was a uh, Van Dorenal and they, and she or he said that, shouldn't we read the Bible more as spiritually rather than literally? And I think that's, you know, obviously there's a difference of opinion there something that Lacey and I talk a lot about spirituality, but as we know, many denominations are reading it literally. So. Yeah. And it's kind of the, the issue with it is like I alluded to earlier, that it is a Rorschach test. Like, I mean, look at the number of cults that have based themselves on the Bible. I mean, like saying you're Bible based is kind of saying nothing. Okay. <clears throat> Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's my issue with it. And it's, but at the same time, honestly, Going back to like my personal backstory, uh, the reason why I ended up having this kind of moment of disagreement with the staff at this ministry school and then walking away was not because I felt like I didn't believe anymore. It's because I believed too much that truth really mattered and that truths were universal and were actually attainable and you could, you could actually get there. But to me, and there's another book that I want to plug. Okay. Awesome. <clears throat> sorry. See, Steve, you're wearing out my voice. I, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't take any questions <laughs> right now. Um, <laughs> is, uh, is the sacredness of, of questioning everything. So this is a book by a guy named David Dark, who is a, uh, he's a English teacher and he is a uh, Christian. And it was this explicitly Christian defense of mm. questioning everything. And I read that book when I was 17 and it changed my life because I had always kind of intuitively felt there it is. Boom. On the money. Thank you, Victor. So awesome. Thank Victor, you. You're the best. <laughs> that, I mean, like, I love that, that it's in that line right there. Is your God big enough to be questioned? 
And that, that to me was, was the crux of the whole thing. This idea that like doubt was the enemy, that any lack of confidence or total moral clarity was the enemy. Well, this, he flipped that on his head and said that like, if God is this ever patient being, and if truth and God are the same, then God isn't afraid of questions. He invites you to question. Because the more you question, the more you doubt, the more you seek, the more you're skeptical, the more you just kind of try to poke into the mysteries of the universe, the closer you'll get to God. And that to me felt like, well, then obviously anybody who does that anywhere is mm -hmm. going to open themselves to the truth and possibly even to God. And like, to me, like, I don't consider myself an atheist, I, agnostic something or other. Like, you know, I, I have a, a Buddha as my profile picture right now because mm -hmm. I basically consider myself a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And but it's because I felt that, you know, uh, truth was available for anybody who was seeking it. And I think there absolutely is, there's truths in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so in some sense, I, I agree with Vaughn that like, you do want to be reading it spiritually, but you want to be careful with that at the same time, because the Bible isn't a spiritual object, unlike everything else. It's that the Bible, like everything else, is a spiritual object. And so if you want to find truth, you need to look at everything. You want to look at right. religious traditions. You want to look within yourself. You want to right. look at nature. You want to look in science. Because, I mean, to me, I still believe that if you seek, you will find. I still believe that. I still believe yeah. that mm -hmm. that process, which is a biblical truth, it is available to anybody. But I, I don't think that that means that the Bible has a unique authority. Uh, that, that's the thing that I have I've since come to reject because like, to me, that squares the importance of the Bible to me spiritually. And also the, the fact that I know that the truth is, is that the Bible is written by fallible humans. It was edited. It's been distilled. It has, it was, you know, canonically put together by a group of people who voted on it. And there were some books that just didn't quite make the cut. Like the more you look into the history of how the Bible was constructed, the less certain you are that the Bible is just like a perfect God-given document. Of course it isn't. Right. But just like with everything else, there are absolutely important truths in it that are worth listening to and they're worth le learning from. And, you know, for me, it's just like, it, it's, it's opened up a door for me to explore all these other religions and to find value in them. Mm -hmm. And I'm not afraid of doing that because I don't think that if, you know, there is a personal God that he would be afraid of me doing that either. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We, we don't have the, um, we're not the only ones with the answers. Uh, I know when Lacey and I did our last podcast, we talked about master Eckhart. He also talks about actually letting go of God, just letting go of all these ideas to allow the truth to come in. So follows what you're saying. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Uh, what's up, Meta Jawbone? If you believe race is a social construct, don't you need broad consensus to also believe that? In order, in to, order to achieve the society you want? The answer is mm. yes, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's that's the reason why this is so hard, right? Um, and that's why it needs, we need leadership. We need people shifting the window on this and being like, no, 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 race is bad. Stop believing it. But we don't like we have people kind of tiptoeing up to that a lot. And we'll even have people saying like, oh, race is a fiction. Race is a social construct. People, everybody nods along as if they agree. But then we don't do <laughs> explicit right. 
you know, we don't explicitly say, oh, but we're getting rid of this and replacing it with this, because I think that requires the more difficult thing, which is, yeah, it's consensus building. It's saying what kind of people that we want to be together. Um, and that, that's something that we're going to have to move toward. And I can already see his, his next question. You should go and throw that one up. Um, <laughs> and I think in the meantime, we got to do what James Baldwin did. We got to do what the, the fields did writing racecraft. And that is we have to decide for ourselves that this is a thing that we oppose. And this is the society they want to move towards. It's kind of like how long it's taken for our culture to secularize. And we're really kind of still going through that of like, you know, waking up to all of these different theological constructs that we have embraced, including workism. That's going to be an ongoing process. I mean, cultures change very slowly. And I'm, I'm confident that we can get there as long as we have leadership and people taking those risks. Because it is risky. Like, hell, I even feel, even though I know that I have really smart people uh, backing me up on these points, I still feel like I'm taking on a personal risk talking about race like this. Because that usually framed in this way of being like, you know what? This has got to go. No, this yeah. is good. But it. It, it's, yeah. I, it's it's something that more people are going to have to be explicit about for us to move forward. And then we're just going to keep, you know, kind of cutting through that rock like a river. Like it's a stream today. It'll be a river tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, we could have said that uh, a year ago about basic income. Like how mm. can we get basic income out? It's just not but you just, you have to do something and you have to trust that when you do the something, something else is going to happen. Something else is going to happen. Something else is going to happen. And at some point the river just busts wide open and you know, you make the progress that you really need to make. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Hmm. Well, James, it has been such, such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Like I, I don't know about Tonya, but I know I've learned a ton Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, we me. could talk about these subjects for hours and hours. Oh, like yeah. We do. <laughs> yeah, but it's great to get another perspective about how we can rethink the way we are doing our humanity. And um, we appreciate your time, man, and we appreciate you being here. Well, I really appreciate you having me. This was a lot of fun. So, yeah, I will. Uh, I'll be around. You know where to reach me. Yeah, yeah, we love sure. the book recommendations because we're big yeah. book readers. Yeah. Check <laughs> out James. Follow James on on Twitter. Also, check out his podcast. It's really good, and you gotta watch Juice, guys. You gotta watch Juice. It's so so good. So, um, best of luck to you, James, with everything else you have going on. And of course, we'll be in touch. All right. Thank you thank so much. You. All right. And thanks to Victor for being awesome with all the. Everything, all the fun yes. things that popped up on the screen. You're, you're, thank you're you, Victor. Up. You were on the money. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, have a great night. Thanks. <laughs>